0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the 7am Novelist Passages of Summer Edition. By the way, if you have a better title for this stupid Passages of Summer Edition, I'm all ears for it. Uh, right, Elizabeth? You probably you can come up with a different title because it sounds like a bad afterschool special. I just don't know what to do with it. Anyway, I'm Michelle Hoover, your host for this lovely Passages of Summer. Uh, we all know that the early pages of a novel or story are very difficult to get right. So this summer, we're discussing the choices that went into a range of authors' first pages in terms of scene, structure, language, et cetera, and how those choices might help you with your own first pages. So today, we hear from Elizabeth Graver, who's going to share the first pages of her latest novel, Cantica, which just came out in April. Good morning, Elizabeth. Good morning, Michelle. Thank you so much for being on the show. Elizabeth Graver's fifth novel, Cantica, was inspired by the tumultuous life journey of her grandmother, who was born into a Sephardic Jewish family in Istanbul. Her fourth novel, The End of the Point, was long listed for the 2013 National Book Award in Fiction and selected as a New York Times Notable Book of the Year. Her other novels are Awake. The Honey Thief, and Unraveling. Her short story collection, Have You Seen Me?, won the 1991 Drew Hines Literature Prize. She's the mother of two daughters, and she teaches at Boston College. All right, Elizabeth, can you give us a short summary of Cantica so that our listeners can kind of follow along our discussion um, when you read your first pages?
1: Sure. So I guess the first thing I'll just quickly say is that it's a bit unconventional as a novel in that it contains family photographs, um, from my family, and I use some real names. So that's just one thing to know coming mm-hmm. in. And it has a very, very pretty cover, I think. Yes, um, but um, it, um, it as as Michelle said, was inspired by the life story of my gr- maternal grandmother, Rebecca. I had done some interviews with her when I was 21 years ago, um, and, um, and knew she'd had a really interesting life, but it took me until about eight or nine years ago to start writing the novel. So it starts in Istanbul in um, 1907. She's a little girl. She's born there into a prosperous family. You'll see that in the first passage. Um, And then it follows my real grandmother's migration journey, but moves into the heads of other characters too, many of whom were people with the names and kind of positions in terms of age and their place in history and stuff as my real family, but that I never met. So her father, who was my great grandfather, um, her mother, and and then eventually moves to places where I had more access. So it starts in Turkey, and then at the collapse of the Ottoman Empire in 1924, the family moves to Barcelona, Spain, which is a very strange place for Sephardic Jews who had yeah. whose ancestors had been expelled from Spain hundreds of years prior to go, but in real life and in the novel my family did go there. Um, And Rebecca spends a very complicated, rich, and some ways difficult decade there, and then um, ends up having, I don't want to give away too much, but her journey takes her to Cuba, and then New York, and the book follows her kind of marked by family photographs, and with these four locations as the kind of um, central places where it takes place. But it's really a story about a migration about a Sephardic Jewish woman and her community, her language of Ladino and Judeo-Spanish, which is a beautiful endangered language. It's mm-hmm. about at what, towards the latter half, a blended family parenting a child with a disability, who's also a character with a strong point of view in the book. Um, Rebecca's a dressmaker. There's a lot about female bodies and kind of um, surfaces and passing and fashioning. Um, so those are some of the, those are some of the, Themes, but it, it took me a long time to write. It's got a lot in it, so that's just a taste. Yeah,
0: yeah. and I'm and why did you choose to use real names? You know, it's interesting.
1: Some of it was just my own relationship to the topic and the relationship of my family to the topic and uh, the people who were still living. Several of my uncles died while I was writing the book, but helped me with it and knew it was happening. My mother is eighty six, and it's been a great gift to her. I think. Mm. I mean, families could like be furious, but so far. Mine seems to appreciate it. Um, um, so partly it was it was almost a private or familial thing, but also the names are really beautiful. A lot of them. So Sultana was my great um, grandmother. Luna was my aunt. They're Sephardic names. They're very particular names. Um, some of them come from the Bible, like Rebecca. So just poetically, I really like them but i also did want um and when we talk about the beginning we can talk about how this was tricky because it really was to signal to the reader that this is it is a novel but it's a novel with a relationship to the real so you wouldn't know that it's real names unless you knew me until you read the acknowledgements but you would know that there are photos from, from the first page. So those seams, I'd never done this before, um, mm-hmm. writing a kind of hybrid, it's genuinely a novel, but it's a wacky one. And I'm just at a point in my life where I was like, I wanna, why not? I'll try it. <laughs> Do it. Yes. Perfect. Uh, okay. Let's hear from it. Okay. So this is the very beginning. I'm going to look at the time, so I'll stop it. Yeah. Okay. So, I don't take up too much time. Okay, so it's Constantinople, 1907, and we have this photograph. And Rebecca is the little girl um, with the long braids in the white dress, the smaller little girl. Okay. Yeah. This, the beautiful time, the time of wingspans, leaps, and open doors, of the heedless headlong flow from here to there. This, the time before thought, the world arriving not as lists or hearkening back or future tense. But his breath filled music, cantar, sing. Rebecca sings to the rhythm of the oars as the boat delivers her to school and in school with the nuns, charne vos yeux vers Jésus, and climbing ropes at Maccabee gymnastics, hand over hand, and wrap your feet, girls. But what draws her up is less the instructor barking commands or the strength of her limbs than the unspooling thread of her own voice. In wordless tunes, nonsense sounds, ballads, in Ladino, French, bits of Turkish, Hebrew, Greek, she sings. As on the street, the lemon man sings lemons, the Bulgarian sings pudding, the vegetable man sings eggplant, squash, and artichokes. Fresh, cheap, ladies, how I wait for you with my aubergine. She sings in school and chorus and for daily hymns. And at night, her mother sings the children to sleep. Duerme, duerme, querido Ijico. Sleep, sleep, darling boy, though two of them are girls. If the dull eyed nightingale rarely makes a chirp, still her father stops by its cage most mornings to try to coax it into song. And he sings at synagogue You've given me a throat that has not gone dry for calling out to you. And one strange morning after services, he leads Rebecca to the Ark. She has just turned eight, still more baby than girl in his eyes. And she sings to the men below and the women above, her voice as unwavering as the cushioned freedoms and unspeakable good fortune of her childhood. Still, her grandmother sews a bonduk bead to the underside of every collar to ward off the evil eye. Their house has three stories and is made of stone, which does not burn. Down the slope is Balat, where the poor Jews live. But her family lives at the top of the hill in Fenair. Their neighbors, Greek diplomats, Armenian doctors, Jewish bankers and traders like her father. And it's with the daughters of these families and a few equally prosperous Muslim girls that Rebecca and her sister Corinne go to school. From their bedroom window, they can see the brick tower of the Greek school for boys, and below it, the minaret of mosques, and below, but beyond that, the golden horn, with its blinking lighthouse, and Haskoy and Galata on the other side. Downstairs, a stream of people come and go, the door more invitation than barrier, men arriving in the evenings to join Rebecca's father in prayer, and it's only after the guests kiss the mezuzah and file out into the dark, that he locks the door and shuts the iron gate. On Sunday afternoons, her mother's friends and relatives arrive to play cards, gossip, and assemble baskets for the poor. And -and so-and-so might be a second cousin or a cousin's cousin, or it's Rebecca's best friend, Rahelika, running up the stairs, or the dressmaker come for a fitting, or Akte, the music master, instructing her father on the nay flute. During the week, her father is at the textile factory or out wandering the city. But on Fridays, he returns to them, the house spotless, the children too. Her mother covers her face, says the prayer, and lights the candles. And as the wicks sputter and take hold, the sun goes down and the gleaming house falls quiet.
0: Should I stop there? That sounds great. Uh- okay. Okay. This is just stunning. I mean, it's just it is just a song. I just I, I read it again this morning and I was just blown away. It's an absolute dream. Um, okay. Well, take so Kantika means song. So I'm yeah, glad yeah, that was song, it it song is and a song. It song. You you have to have it. So you said earlier, you said that you needed to signal that it was a novel um in these early pages. How did you do that?
1: I mean, I think I almost more needed to signal that it was a weird novel because um, I guess signaling that it was a novel felt easy to me because I've written a whole bunch of novels and it says novel on the back, you know? So it was more signaling through the photo, but actually, you know, the the question of, of early passages is interesting. Through a section, I, I had, my editor had me cut a, a whole different opening before that was a, a kind of um, prologue before this that signaled much more over, more overtly its status in relationship to me and my family Mm -hmm. so um I can talk a little bit about that if you want but once that was cut it was kind of a question of how to both have that just come into my world novel thing right just like let's go and and that really mattered to me like this you know why do we read fiction right you want to be just for me you know it's maybe why like I don't read academic novels because I'm an academic like I, I like to be like taken. Yeah. Um, and so I I wanted that feeling of just let's go. it's dense, it's full. it's a world and you're gonna move um, not through plot, which I'm actually horrible at, but um but through kind of place and language and emotion. Um, so that's the novel part, but the photo, I think is is what signals
0: the the seams. But there was a lot more signaling of the seams that I was convinced to take out. And she she thought you should take it out because it needed to be more of a novel. Was that, that more kind of a historical text or... or- well, it was interesting. I
1: had a really really wonderful editor. Her name's Riva Hockerman at um at Metropolitan Books Halt and she she understood completely what I was doing, which was not true with some other editors that we showed the book to. Like there was there was one who was like I can't read it with the photos. Take the photos out because it's breaking the spell for me. Mm-hmm. Um so I knew that they I knew they were risky, but she loved the photos and she was very happy to have the book signal its relationship to the real. But basically she sort of said to me, the photos do that. You don't need to do it more like trust, like don't insist because the first section was a kind of um, rendition, not, not word for word, but of the recordings of my grandmother. So there was an, I actually pulled it up on my phone because I was trying to remember it. There was an image of my grandmother as a beautiful old woman with her star of David earrings. And, you know, I'm, I'm so attached to her. So part of what I had to do, she died in 1992, but was like, figure out what was that and what was what the art needed. And then I had a kind of, um, I had a, a little, very tiny one and a half pages, but passage of her saying you have your thingy on what's the testing bueno with uh, basically somebody recording her and I didn't say who it was but but eventually because I also had a epilogue that got cut you would figure out that there was a granddaughter aka moi right um Mm -hmm. gathering this story in old age you know in the in, in in Rebecca's old age and I f- but but really, so that was the visible seams of my gathering it. But it, it ended up not being super important because I'm not a character in it. I had no interest in being in and yeah. having a granddaughter like soothing the past. So it wasn't what I was doing. Yeah. So I think that, you know, again, I felt a pang because I loved the photo. I, I thought her voice was really interesting because English was like her fifth language. Um, But I ended up making a little video, I can send you the link if you want, that actually contains clippings of her voice that's on my website Mm -hmm. and um, that I've been showing at book events because it does matter to me. Like this book is kind of a duet in a certain way. Um, And so her voice is important to me. But when I tried to write out her actual voice word for word from the cassettes, it was a disaster because her English just, it's really, really hard to write someone speaking English as a second language and not have it feel like a parody and in fact she was very articulate so I had to just kind of handle all of her language crossings inside the novel which I really do a lot and my editor was great kind of saying you can do these things the most important ones but you don't need them right away like take us in does that make sense
0: Yes, absolutely. And I think it's I think it's interesting because I think sometimes, particularly with historical novels that this becomes, they're like, well, it needs a contemporary tie in or it needs a way for the contemporary reader to enter it. However, sometimes having that presence can get away. It creates a for me, it can it creates a screen between us and like the character of Rebecca. And we just want to be with the character of Rebecca. And. Um, how quickly then did you find, so we basically, you basically have this omniscient, this sweeping omniscient voice in the first pages now. Did you find those right away? Um,
1: I think I wrote that early passage pretty early, but yeah. the book moved around a lot because it had all these different pieces. And it actually, when you read further, it, it goes into close third person, which moves around between characters most of the time. It's actually not that omniscient. Yeah. I mean, it's third person limited um, with Rebecca as the really steady recurring thread, but then it goes into other characters too. So the the beginning is, I do that occasionally where I'll jump forward, I'll jump forward in time, I'll suddenly signal something that happens, um, you know, in a different country, but most of the time it's pretty tight. So did I find... I? I think that voice, that early voice felt right to me there, but I wouldn't have wanted to do it for the whole book because it's not close enough. Like it's not psychological enough. It's
0: not interior, you know? And it, well, I think a lot of people, a lot of writers are like, well, if I do the omniscient point of view, then I have to stick through it for the full, full book. But omniscient is both a point of view stance, but it's also a narrative distance stance. And so really right. it's actually best to change your narrative distance as you go in and out of the book, depending on what scenes you're going towards and and what parts of the chapter. So this sort of opening, this kind of distant opening where we get this huge sweep of the life And it is, it has that distance and it is that omniscience is a great way to start a book. And then you can then go closer into the characters. And then usually, usually at the beginning of a chapter, at end of a chapter, beginning of a scene, end of a scene, or at the end of the book are the best places to pull out or even after a really loud moment is the best place to pull out. But you don't have to stick with one narrative distance stance. You can actually move in and out. And it's really important to have the, um, the ability to do that, because it actually puts your fiction on a different level. Um, so I love hearing that. I, I expected that's what you would do. You would you would begin in this sweep like this, but then you would allow yourself to um, move in. And what I also love, so we have a lot of, um, I think the the one great thing that's working with this omniscient voice is that the voice, the voice itself is very strong. Um, it's not an intrusive omniscient voice. It seems like it's an objective omniscient voice, but it still has a character. So I think that that helps the omniscience as well. And it has a lot of exposition, um, but there's so much movement in the verbs. I mean, the whole thing is singing and moving and and there's just a lot of movement and there's a lot of, of the sensory details. And that's what's going to save any long lengths of description or... Um, or information even. And so you actually do that. And we're just like, I feel like we're just like wringing the juice out of this book from the very beginning. Uh, That's great. Um, I mean, you're
1: making me think of one of my favorite beginnings, which is the beginning of um, James Agee's A Death in the Family, that little prologue. And that was sort of in my head, which is basically music. It's like, here we are, here's this family, but it's the sentences, like it's, 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 it's taking you in, in a way that is, it, that's also quite omniscient. So that's actually something I go, I think it's called Knoxville, Knoxville. It, 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 it's, it's its own little set piece and it's been set to music also. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, which was, which was really interesting. So you're right. I mean, that's exactly what I was trying to do. And I, I I love what you said about the shifts because I also think that those shifts from omniscient to really small, any, any shift like that with white space or beginnings and endings are kind of something those shifts themselves are really powerful like the reader just somehow there's something in that movement from big to small or small to big that that especially i think if there's a transition like there's space in some way that is that is itself its own whole thing in writing
0: yeah so it can it can wake the text up um, it can be jarring if you do it too quickly, or if you jump the different point uh, uh, narrative distance levels too quickly. Um, but it can also be surprising, and and it can work very well. Um, again, like I said, after a particularly loud moment, if you wanna if you want to jump there. So yeah. when you're, I just recommend for their listeners when you're reading, look for those different modes of of narrative distance. Um, you can also look back. We did a, a, some talks about narrative distance in our early. Uh, writing challenges that detail more of this stuff um, but it's it's really it's great to use in particularly with historical fiction um, because we need this world building we need this world as well um, and the narrative distance can grant you that there's also little tricks you have here you have this one line right in the beginning rebecca sings to the rhythm of the oars as the boat delivers her to school and in school with the nuns what Jesus? My French is not that great. And climbing ropes at Maccabi gymnastics, hand over hand, and wrap your feet, girls. But what draws up now? That is such a great little trick. You actually fall into almost um direct speech with the um the gymnastics coach, but um it's paraphrased and it's it's just I thought it was just delightful. I loved seeing that. Um, There's because there's so many other voices in this opening passage. So you do that, even though that that's paraphrased, it's almost slipped in. We also get um, we get the uh, French from the nuns, and we get we get all sorts of voices and we get all sorts of languages um, wrapped up here. Um, and is that again, something that just came to you? Did you want to hit all those different languages? Cause I am assuming this book is also a lot about languages. It
1: really is. And I, it didn't just come to me. I mean, I think the wrap your feet girls did just come to me sort of in the flow of the sentence. Um, and, and, and I think I actually remember that at one point someone, maybe a copy editor wanted quotes around that. And I said, no, I don't want that. I want it to be slipped in. But yes, I mean, this is a very cosmopolitan world that she lived in and with a lot of crossings. And it's also a world that not that many current readers know that much about. So I I did have to, you know, it's a little weird that this Jewish girl in Istanbul went to Catholic school, right? And a lot of people don't know what Ladino is. You know, it's an old version. It's kind of pre-Inquisition Spanish mixed with... Um, a lot of other contact languages like, uh, well, Hebrew and Turkish and um, French eventually, because the Jewish community during the Ottoman Empire in the later years were, was educated in French. So I, ha- I actually had a lot of I hate the word. It's not it's not quite the right word, but educating to do like I needed to kind of drop all of this in and. I took a lot of pleasure in it as I was learning about this world and thinking about what made my actual grandmother interesting, because it's a world that's incredibly rich. Um, And it's also a world that's going to get shattered in this book. So part of the kind of this enormous flow, like the doors are open, the gates are open, there's friends, there's family and that's not true later. Later, there's a lot of locked doors. So, so no one knows that yet, but in a certain way, I'm setting things up to then break them, you know?
0: Yeah. And it carries, well, it carries a lot of nostalgia. So I, th- yes. I think that it kind of sets us up for that, that break. Um, yeah. And the
1: first, the first line, this, the beautiful time is repeated three, two other times in the book where I'm actually talking about nostalgia. So.
0: Yeah. yeah. And then do you drop, so we do have a young Point of view character rebecca um, but the omniscient voice here is definitely an adult's voice uh-huh. um, and that's something that i also see that people um confuse if you have a young character you don't actually necessarily have to speak or have the um text in third person um speak in that young voice you can use right. the older adult voice do we actually do we eventually move into a younger voice with Rebecca, or do you always keep that kind of more distance adult the
1: the voice is much
0: closer but
1: I don't limit it to the language that she would have at that age it's not that close I've done that in other books like I I have a novel called the honey thief that has an 11 year old central character and it's also third person I find writing kid characters in first person really hard because it gets so I mean, people do it and people do it really well in kid lit. But um, it, for me, it's it's hard to get the complexity that I'm trying to get because I think children are as complex as grownups, but they don't have the language. So, um, so I would say it's closer. The language is probably a little simpler and cleaner when I'm really close to her. It's not as lush exactly, but I'm not limiting it. I mean, I also had the kind of interesting multi-layered thing of I'm not limiting it to her words, but she wasn't speaking English anyway, right? Like, you know, so the the linguistic levels in this, like the book is in mostly English, but it didn't
0: mostly take place in English, the story. So, yeah. Did that cause you some problems or did you just find that as a good challenge to have or did you just go with it? Mostly I went with it. I mean, English
1: is my language, but I did really try to, use a lot of other languages and that was complicated because I didn't want to annoy my reader. One, two, I only speak French out of all. So this book has Ladino, Catalan, Spanish, Catalan, um, Castilian, Spanish, a little Turkish, some Hebrew, some French. It's got a crazy amount of number of languages in it. And that really mattered to me. And I was interested in sometimes translating, but not always in getting it right. So I sat in a, on a Ladino class at Tufts and I, you know, I did, this book took me a long time because I, I really tried to get it right. I asked experts, um, Ladino is kind of great because there's not a standardized spelling. So, um, but, but I also was interested in kind of having little moments of incomprehension. So, you know, I don't, always translate and I, I for example the title you don't know what it means unless you know Ladino which is a very small segment of my readers right I mean actually Ladino speaking readers are finding it which is so fun but most people it just presents as a bizarre word that might sound like tantar or canticle or sort of cognates in some other languages but so that that question of language and of like when When are you totally, it it, it again kind of gets back to that early question that my editor helped me with of trusting the reader. Like it's okay to have a title that you don't know about if you're curious and you're willing to come along. And you know, there are books like Pachinko, which I think is an incredible book um, by Min Jin Lee, which also was an influence for me with this book because it's big and it covers history and she has to keep grounding. There's a lot of movement and there's a title that. I didn't know what it meant when I started the book.
0: Right. right. Now it doesn't really, now, and I love that your editor gave you the reins for that um, and allowed you to make the book what you wanted it to be. Um, I think that's- Yeah, I,
1: I said, thought. I have a weird idea for a title. She said, weird is good. What is it? So, <laughs> I was like, this is great. And then she said, now we have to get it past the marketing people and the, you know, so we had to wait a little while and and they all were okay with it.
0: Right. And were there, because of that, did you have to do more edits or changes later um, to make it what they, what they thought was more readable? I mean, to me, it's gorgeously readable, but were there things that you, well, no.
1: I mean, my editor was a really good, close editor, but I don't think that was her agenda. If anything, she was more telling me, trust your reader, take stuff out. Yeah. You know, yeah. So I just had the copy editing was hard because like there's one scene where set in Barcelona, where it's moving, there's bits of Catalan, Castilian and Ladino and like senora or senoretta, they're spelled differently in all three. And I didn't know any of it. So there were a lot of moments where I was kind of really hoping I wasn't making errors, but then the copy editor doesn't know Ladino. So um, there were, there were some sticky moments of just trying to make sure we weren't yeah. getting it wrong. But I and love
0: that though. Cause you're challenging the reader. You're expecting a lot of the reader and you're challenging yourself. Yeah. I learned so much. You can't even you imagine. learn a lot. So it's, so it's, 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 it's part of an experience. You're growing and learning just the same way as the reader is. That's um, right. I think that's, what's going to, what's going to feed the reader and drive people to this book. So I think that's excellent. When... I'm going to have to let you go. We're going to have to finish up. Um, You can find our full Passages of Summer schedule on our Substack page at 7amnovelist.substack.com. Subscribe there for updates. You can also find our full range of podcast episodes on that page, including episodes from our past two writing challenges, as well as any of those episodes on your favorite podcast platforms. And if you like what we're doing, please follow, rate, and review the podcast so that we can find other listeners. All right, Elizabeth, do you have any last advice that you would give to authors about their own first pages?
1: I guess I would say, given what I've just described, trust your reader. Like, if you're trying to do something interesting, don't feel like you need to hammer it over their head. Heads, um, and and also maybe don't assume that where you think your book begins is where it really begins. Often you're going to be thirty pages in like that. You you need to be willing to toss, and it can take a while. Don't rush. I guess I'd say.
0: Exactly. Might, okay. You might not need to spend a decade like I did, but don't rush. Or you can spend a decade because this book was that important to you to get right. Yeah. Um, I, I'm yeah. glad I didn't rush, I will say. Yeah, yeah, excellent. Amazing. Okay, I, we're going to have to get these people to the writing desk. I hope everyone gets some good spark and some good ideas for their own first pages. And thank you again, Elizabeth, for being with us. Um, I I think reading over these first pages will get anyone excited about writing. So okay. I- Thank you. Good luck, everyone. Oh, this was nothing? really fun. I love your project. Great. Thanks so much. All right, everyone. Go to it.